Welcome to Family Karma Cast, everybody. My name is Indra. I'm flying solo today, but really excited to have Pardeep Singh from Michelle's season of The Bachelorette, which aired at the end of 2021, on with me today. Welcome to the podcast, Pardeep. Yeah, I'm so excited. Thanks for having me. It's so great to have you. And um, I want to say right off the bat that being on The Bachelor obviously is not the only thing you have done in your life. You're very accomplished. You're a neuroscientist. And you also host your own podcast called Deep Thoughts Podcast, which we will get into in a little bit. But um, first of all, how are you doing today? Uh, It's cold outside. Uh, I'm I'm a bit (laughs) of a hermit. So I've been enjoying just staying home and playing video games and doing work on the computer being my yeah. things my jam jams so i've been <laughs> i've been chilling i've been chilling yeah and so you live in brooklyn right uh i right now i'm living in up, i'm in upstate new york temporarily oh uh, okay but, yeah i'm born and raised in brooklyn it's where all my family is uh i could be down there in a second uh yeah anytime, but but i lived in brooklyn my entire life effectively nice um where upstate are you uh, i'm in the capital uh albany uh uh, Albany is the capital of New York State, where the governor is, where the Senate is. So I'm just there for now. Yeah, early. nice. Yeah. I was born in um, Ithaca, New York, so I know upstate New York well. Me too. It's a little bit different. It, <laughs> New York is a, is a vibe for sure. It's a vibe. <laughs> <laughs> and it is very cold and and yes. dreary in February. But um, So you grew up in Brooklyn, which is interesting to me. Actually, before I get to that... Um, so you're South Asian, but obviously that means a lot of different things. So how do you identify within the South Asian community? Uh, I, I mean, that, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, I'm sure we know that there's a whole diaspora of Indian American, South Asian American identities. Uh, so my family, though I was born and raised in Brooklyn, and, and while I am monoracial, I do consider myself somewhat multicultural in a way, because uh, my grandparents' families were moved from India to the West Indies as part of the British slave trade. And so they were actually born in Trinidad and Guyana in the Caribbean. Okay. And I think uh, maybe something that's not widely known is that there's a large Indian population in the West Indies <clears throat> because of mm-hmm. British, British colonialism. So that culture in itself is a hybrid of many different cultures, uh, Indian culture, British, British culture, even uh, African-American culture, Spanish culture as well. Uh, and even geographically is in an interesting place. Guyana's while it's part while it's kind of Caribbean in its culture is part of the South American continent. Um, so they grew up there. And so my mother has a West Indian accent, but you know, there are, but we did grow up in an Indian household watching Bollywood movies, uh, <laughs> uh, visiting Jackson Heights and Queens. Um, and you know, though I don't speak Hindi, um, I, I do go to temples somewhat often uh, and while I, and maybe understand what people are trying to say without really knowing what they're saying. Um, yeah. So I would identify as like an Indo-Caribbean in a way, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but uh, but multicultural, uh, I would say. You know, my I don't really speak Hindi or Punjabi, though my father's from Punjab, um, okay. and I didn't really grow up with him either. So I would say that uh, though I, I identify as Indian American. Um, I would consider myself West Indian. Okay. Yeah. The Guyanese population 
uh, like the West Indian population from Guyana. I'm learning more and more about that. And it seems like there's a solid community forming within the U.S. Like or there always has been, but one that like through media even I've seen. Um, did you watch Indian Matchmaking? Uh, yeah, actually. Uh, yeah, my brother was on Indian Matchmaking. Shout out to Rabbi Guru. Oh, my God. Uh, really? Yeah, he was, you know, he he put me onto orange juice. Orange juice is great. And uh, <laughs> and so shout out to him. That's my big brother. Uh, and, you know, he's 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 everything to me. So shout out to him uh, and show him some love. <laughs> yeah. And um, Nadia is also Guyanese, her family, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask about growing up in Brooklyn because I feel like when we talk about New York City and the South Asian population there, the conversation always goes to Jackson Heights because that's like, you know, little South Asia in a lot of ways. That's where all the Indian restaurants are. That's where you can buy clothes, you know, get mainly done, all the stuff. Um, So what part of Brooklyn did you grow up in? And like, how was that experience of being like the Indian kid from Brooklyn, I guess? Well, Brooklyn is like, a, it's like, so first of all, you're right when you say that the the sort of contemporarily accepted Indian community in New York City is in Queens, Jackson Heights, and not really in Brooklyn. And so, you know, for that reason, I didn't really grow up around Indians in Brooklyn, New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up in a more multicultural type neighborhood. Um, so I started off living in Midwood, Brooklyn, which is like in the middle of Brooklyn. But, you know, spent, spent time living in the surrounding, not living, but spending time in the surrounding neighborhoods as well. Flatbush, for example, is where my high school was, Midwood High School. But throughout the years, we were moving more and more south. So right now we're living in, excuse me, Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, which is like South mm-hmm. Brooklyn. Uh, and that has a lot to do with like just gentrification and stuff. But yeah, basically growing up in Brooklyn is like, yeah, you know, I went to public school in Brooklyn, uh, in high school and elementary school and before that. And it's like when you think New York City, oftentimes, you know, if you Google New York City and you go to Google Images, you get a picture of Central Park or you get a picture of the Statue of Liberty or all these other really touristy places. But when you're actually from there, these are places that you don't really visit. And my New York was really like a five block radius of my house where I can walk to my friend's house or take two or three train stops away to go to school or to go to a cultural event or to play handball or dodgeball or whatever. Uh, so my New York City was was more of a, an enclave of multiple types of people from all different parts of the world. So uh, so I grew up in a really multicultural setting like that. And it wasn't really until I got to college that I really started to you know blend in with the Indian community learn about Indian fraternities, um, <clears throat> took a class on Hindi uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, so it was really until I got to college that I really start um, that I really start to, I guess, uncover a lot of my cultural heritage. And so you mentioned your brother and your mom. I read somewhere, I think on one of your posts, that you grew up with a single mom. And, um, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of like, I don't think there's stigma around having a single parent, but I think that there's like stigma in the South Asian community around like the non-traditional family structure sometimes and maybe like some judgment that like is totally makes no sense and whatever. So I'm curious um, to hear if you experienced any of that um, growing up with a single parent. Uh, That's a good question. And it's it's hard because it's not something I think about as often these days because uh, I've sort of come to grips with a lot of the hardships that I had to go through growing up. So, you know, there, there there's a few parts of that. Number one, growing up with a single mother, 
uh, in New York City who is raising two kids, two kids at the time, is already a hardship in itself. My mother had to work two jobs uh, on any given day um, while also trying to pursue her own her own personal goals as well and raise two kids, you know, pay rent, buy food, uh, afford transportation, buy clothes. We often were up against the social safety net in New York City. So living off food stamps or living off uh, SSI or living off uh, housing and rental assistance just to get by. On top of that, you know, no, no real job wants a lady who can only work, who can't work three months out of the year because your kids are home for the summer and you can't afford a babysitter. So we had to improvise a lot of our lives just so we can make it to the next day when it comes to finding supervision, finding after school programs, uh, staying in school. This is why school is really important because it was, it was really our only way out of a really tough living living situation. On top of that, you know, not having a father around, you know, as 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 a man growing up in New York City, it's not really till now that I realize what a deficiency that is. Only having a single a single root of income, not having a father to comfort us when when on our birthdays or Christmas or parent teacher conference, not really celebrating Father's Day ever or anything of that nature. So that alone, you know, separate from the stigma of what is considered a traditional family in South Asian culture, is already a lot to deal with. But I would say that the the person who would know what that stigma feels like would it really be me because I was just a kid and my mother did a great job to hide us from a lot of the stigma that she would often feel from her own community being a single mother. And so though I'm sure that stigma existed, I, I would say that whenever I would hang out with my other sort of Indian American friends, Pakistani American friends, Bengali American friends, they would they would always have two parents in the house. They would always have two people working. They would always have a father or someone to talk to. And in that way, I felt very left out because this is a whole segment of my persona that I never really got to got to tap into, you know, which is why I'm very adamant now as an adult that that doesn't happen with me. I'm pretty determined to make sure I do have a somewhat traditional family structure uh, and that I am an active and engaged participant in my family as a father, as a brother, as a son to avoid that kind of hardship. So I, I would say it was, it was tough. Yeah. In the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think acknowledging that like your mother probably felt the most stigma and that she did a good job hiding it from you. You know, that's that speaks to probably what a great mom you have. <laughs> so you mentioned education being important. And you're a neuroscientist now, which is like kind of a big deal. I mean, there's not that's like definitely I feel like the minute I hear neuro anything, neurosurgeon, neuroscientist, whatever, I'm like, okay, so this person is impressive. They've done like a lot of work to get to where they are. Um, so tell me about your journey to where you are now and um, maybe what your research is about these days. Yeah. So, so you know, I've always been good at the sciences, even as a kid. One of my favorite times of the year was the science fair at school, you know, when you, <laughs> when you buy like the tri board and you do like a little science project. Yeah. Uh, I, that was always the best time of year for me because I would always place in the competition somewhere. Uh, and so getting into college, it's like, hey, what, what am I going to major in for the next four years that I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing? Uh, <laughs> so I figured science is, sci let, me, let, me, let me start with science since, that, since that's something I was always good at. Um, and, you know, getting into the sciences. So first of all, education. Education and being in school and being, you know, getting good grades or be having great relations with, with your teachers in one way is a necessity to become a successful in your career. 
but in, in another, when you're really poor, it's a necessity to like stay off the streets or to find good influences or influ find good role models or find social capital. Because my mother oftentimes couldn't afford babysitters. So staying in school for as long as possible, whether it's after school programs or sports, after school reading programs or whatever, serve the secondary function to keep us off the streets and away from like the sort of what's the word not so friendly crowds of kids who are now adults uh <laughs> but <laughs> but uh but schools serve the secondary function as kind of a social safety net in itself because when when you are in oftentimes every other kid would bring their own lunch from school their mom would make them a sandwich somebody would bring a lunchable somebody would bring all these other foods and snacks that I was really dying to try but we couldn't afford and I'd be the one relying on school lunches mm. and oftentimes would have to go in for a second or third servings to bring it home or or to to my mom or to my brother or something like that just in case we didn't have any food at home so being in school a is not only important for your career, but when you're really poor is also a, a social safety net as well, you know, which is why this is something I'm really passionate about. Uh, but once I got to college, uh, that really showed the deficiencies in my education uh, growing up, but like going to public school and, and low tier public school education really showed when I tried to enter the sciences because it wasn't until my junior year in college that I entered my first research lab. And anybody who's listening to this who's in STEM knows that like, starting your research lab as an undergrad is like essential to get into grad school or beyond or get a career in the sciences. But I joined my first research lab pretty late my junior year, which means effectively I only had one year to get my applications together and have that research experience. And so what was really sad is that by the time I joined my first research lab, um, I was the only person who, for example, A, never been in, in a research lab and B, uh, never used a pipette before. And anybody in the biological sciences knows like a pipette is like, it's the pistol for a sheriff. Like it's, it's the, it's a necessary instrument. And in that way, I felt really left out. Like, wow, I really didn't have the necessary education to succeed. And so I have to squeeze four years of science into this one year, just so I can get the most out of it. But I've been very lucky and fortunate to eventually, uh, uh, get a job in the sciences, make a career out of it. But now I'm sort of transitioning out of laboratory work into science policy, which is why I'm in Albany right now. I'm doing a fellowship with the New York State Senate and the health committee. Uh, so for a long time, especially at the start of the pandemic, I always had this sort of B-side of my work, which involves science communication, science policy, science law, to bridge the gap between scientists and policymakers. But now I'm like, actually doing that and getting paid for it. <laughs> so, yeah. so I interact with senators every day, assembly people every day. I'm sort of an advise and consent role as far as law related to the sciences, science policy, uh, medicine, research, things of that nature. So I guess in a way I traded the lab coat for a sport coat now. Uh, <laughs> so, so I left. So, so I, I, I'm always a scientist, but now I'm just not in the lab per se. And we all have a role to play in the sciences. So that's where I'm at now. I like that you said that about the sciences, that we're all kind of have a role in it, because I feel sometimes people think science is like so disconnected from other parts of our life when really it's like a part of everything. So are you like involved in aspects of like public health policy and stuff, which is obviously huge right now with COVID and everything? Everything, everything. Actually, like uh, it's like you it's like it's interesting uh, trying to like address the sciences when you're not in the lab is you have to take a different view on the issues in the sciences in when you're in a policy role, as opposed to like when you're, when you're in the laboratory, you're taking more of a, I guess, regulatory approach to uh, what kinds of medicines are you going to allow to be subsidized by Medicaid? 
for example, is there a disproportionate distribution of asthma in, in communities of color? Uh, and how do we get asthma medication to those communities? So in that way, it's a public health question. What do the CDC guidelines say about masks and vaccines? Uh, and how do we make sure our messaging is appropriate for whatever the scientists are saying? So it's it's less about like coming up with the reasoning for why we should wear masks, for example, and more about getting the message out to our constituents and our community. Because growing up in, in Brooklyn, again, like I never, I, I didn't meet any scientists until I got to college. And yeah. so, and so this is like, these are the communities now it's the role is the role has reversed where I am the scientist now giving back to communities in the Bronx and in Brooklyn and wherever who don't know where to get tested or who don't know where to get vaccines or who don't know the laws surrounding Medicaid and Medicaid and whatever. Uh, and when it's coming from an informed person such as myself, it, it carries a lot of weight. Uh, and yeah. this, this, I think, is another role that scientists should be taking uh, going, going forward, because as you say, it is like there is a disconnect between what scientists do and how it affects our everyday lives. Um, and it's really not until now where where vaccines affect our civil liberties. Do people really give a shit? Sorry, I don't know. If yeah. Curse on this. No, go ahead. Yes, <laughs> I swear all the time. <laughs> yeah, and so it's not until like it starts affecting your civil civil liberties do people ask what is a what is a PCR test? What is a what does a virus do? What is a vaccine? Like, bro, like this stuff yeah. has been around for like two hundred years, man. Like it's not new. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah. like, so it's like now I'm in a space where like I'm normalizing a lot of these really confusing topics, which is great um, because I'm happy, to, I'm happy to do that. Yeah. And do you feel like you have a unique position in this because you have like come from a community that didn't have that education and like kind of understand firsthand like what it's like not to have that information? And now, like you said, you're on the other side and you're providing that information for that community. Yeah, definitely. Uh, because in, so there's a big lack of diversity issue in STEM. You know, a lot of uni university professors who get tenures are straight white males, or uh, a lot of research lab. The disproportionate uh, rate in which grants are awarded to research labs, oftentimes labs led by you know black scientists, don't get the grants that they uh, that they deserve, or there's a disproportionate award rate of grants to those types of labs, or admissions rates, or things of that nature. And all of this, when you put it together, starts to starts to affect the literature itself, the scientific literature, yeah. where, where the literature A is not focusing on communities that really need the attention or B, you know, for example, if there's like a clinical trial, actually, here's, here's a real life example where we had a, um, a biotech company that was trying to get a type of pregnancy screening to be subsidized by Medicaid. And this is a group that usually will be talking to a bunch of like politicians or whatever about what this test is, and why it should be passed by Medicaid. But then me as the scientist in, in the office asked them more real scrutinizing questions about what this test does, what is a target, why is it important? And you know, one thing I uncovered, for example, is that they're, they're the papers that they cited uh, not representative of communities in the Bronx, for example, where communities in the Bronx are like mostly Latino or Black and Latino, and they want to bring this test to them, not realizing that the very group that they want to bring this test to were not incorporated into their clinical trials. And this is a real issue in the sciences where there's no representation in clinical trials, for example, of the communities that they want to sell medicine to. When you describe uh, diseases that impact certain communities, it's often ascribed to their skin color as opposed to other underlying health conditions. So this has a lot to do with lack of diversity in the sciences and yeah. it reflects in the papers as well. So me being from those communities, like I pick up on that. Like I see mm. it when I read it. 
uh, and then I call it out. It's my pleasure to call that shit out. Like it makes you feel good <laughs> to like take a dump on some of these people. So yeah. <laughs> so now now that I'm in a position where I am from those communities and I can call it out, and I hope that it's some kind of like you know justice. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm so glad that you're doing that. That's so important. I was just reading something about how this affects the medical training field as well, because a lot of like you know when residents are like going through the rotations or whatever, a lot of their like practice that they're doing is like only on white patients or like, you know, it's not diverse, even like what they're doing within their training. And so that affects, the, you know, how they actually are as doctors going down the line. So it's just really underlines like how important having like representation along race across all aspects of like, any discipline is so important to have like true equity and like and good care when it comes to medicine and things like what you're doing. Yeah. Even when you like even when you open medical textbooks, like why is the cross section of a pregnant lady in a medical textbook always a white lady? Like you're not the only one that can get pregnant, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. Like representation matters. Like it matters a lot. Even if even if it doesn't substantively change what you're learning, just seeing it matters a lot. And even seeing it on TV on a dating show, for example, yes. matters a lot. It matters a lot. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk more about your podcast, but since you just brought up reality TV and <laughs> representation on reality TV, let's talk about that for a second. So new information, your brother was on Indian matchmaking, yeah. <laughs> you were on The Bachelorette, like you two are like a power team <laughs> when it comes to South Asian representation on like big dating shows that like a lot of people have seen. Um, And one thing I notice is... So your time on The Bachelorette was, how many weeks were you there? Mm, only two. <laughs> only two? Okay, but only two. but you made quite a splash. I feel like people were talking about you for a while afterwards. Like, you know, you got noticed, let's say. So um, is that just me? Did you feel that? Like, how was your experience before being on The Bachelorette versus after? Like how life has changed, you mean? Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a big question. It's hard to say because there's a lot of things going. There's a lot that that happens. Um, I would say that, you know, now my life is public at this point okay. where I'm living in a space where anyone can like have access to me or look up things about me. I have gi I've given up certain liberties of my privacy uh, because I chose to be in that public space. And that's fine. Like, I don't mind doing that. But that's something that takes a little bit of getting used to and a sort of a certain amount of awareness of your actions and then the reactions, what you say and how you say it uh, and how people might might interpret what is otherwise a benign statement in a negative in a negative way. So these are things that now I have to think about you know, especially as a minority and as a person of color, anything you say is can be highly scrutinized in in certain settings, even if it's a benign statement. So like that's something I'm like getting used to, I think. But I've always felt like I was prepared for that for some reason. Did you watch the show before you auditioned for it or submitted yourself mm, for it? No, 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 not at all. Okay. No. And so <laughs> I've I've been a fan of the show for like I was just thinking about it. Like, I think 10 years I've been watching, which is like kind of embarrassing. But <laughs> <laughs> I I always thought, you know, like, and I've been in a relationship that whole time. So I never could have actually gone on the show. But I always thought like, if I were to go on this show, like I have a lot of like things around 
keeping my like romantic life private from my parents and my family. Mm. You know, I was like, gosh, we're never going to see any South Asians on this screen because like they're not going to want to go on and like kiss someone publicly and like potentially like go to a fantasy suite or whatever, you know, like all those things are things that like wouldn't be worth it to me to go on it. But um, that's just me. I'm curious to hear if you had any thoughts about that beforehand, maybe from not watching the show, you're just kind of like, I'm going to do this. Um, So it's, it's a couple things. So number one, like I get what you're saying. Like, yeah. Oh my God. All the aunties and uncles are going <laughs> to are gonna gossip about us making out with somebody who's not brown on TV. Uh, <laughs> I get that. I really do. But honestly, I don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah. Good. Because it's like, you know, this is America, son. Like, this is American TV. This is this is what happens. And like, I again, like, I think not growing up in the Indian community made it a lot, a much easier pill to swallow. Yeah. And so um, and on top of that, like, you know, I was actually like interested in getting to know Michelle and, fig- yeah. <laughs> and figure out like what she's about. Like, I was actually curious and and like, I'm I'm into it. Like, I, I wouldn't have minded if I made it to the end, like being being the one and it's okay that I'm not like Nate and Michelle are great, but like I would say that you know I'm in a place in my life where I was where I was like propositioning, settling down, and finding somebody to do that with, and you know, and I'm somebody who's attracted to really great characters, so I care less about like where your parents are from or what language they speak or what color they are. I care more about like who you are as a person, your judgment, your character, your vision. For the future and a life that you could possibly see together that's what i'm more interested in uh especially considering the fact i never i didn't really have that growing up a normal mm-hmm. household like i desperately want that like i desperately want to have like a normal house with a yeah. wife kids because everybody else got to have it why couldn't i so i'm i'm desperately seeking that out but you know going into the show i i really didn't care about like my identity as an Indian American, because like, I just wanted to go in and impress Michelle and make some friends. Uh, I wanted to bring my identity as a New Yorker, as a scientist and whatever else as a gamer, I guess, (laughs) (laughs) you know, me being me as somebody who has a very indignant personality. Once I sort of got that rose, I realized, oh crap, like this is it. Like I have to, this is a show that doesn't have people like me come up very often. And so I have to do my best to make sure that any characterization I, I put forward cannot be interpreted in a negative or racist or or negative stereotypical type of way. Because that wouldn't be fair to all, to all of you and all my friends and anyone who looks like me. And so I had to do my best to stay cool. Like I, I don't have a cool personality. Like I have, a, <laughs> I have like a very anxious and fiery personality. But when you're the first person to do something, everything you do is highly scrutinized. Uh, and so I wouldn't have mind making out on TV. I would have been cool with that. I also had to think about these other things as it relates to like being a minority on a show that doesn't have people that look like you, despite also being there like for the right reasons and whatever. So these are all the thoughts that are like in my head. Uh, and it's it's complicated and it's confusing, but nothing really prepares you for it. So like I said, I've been watching the show for 10 years. I cannot remember another South Asian man being on The Bachelorette. Is that like true by what you've like? Were are you truly the first person South Asian man on the show? Uh, so I'll say this. Uh, first of all, like where, however an individual identifies is up to them. Yeah. And you know, identity is a mix of a lot of different things. It's a mix of what kind of music you listen to, where your parents are from, what you eat, et cetera, et cetera. All of this makes up your identity. So the only other 
like Indian person that has claimed to be an Indian person on The Bachelorette was on Rachel Lindsay's season. Mohit, who was a great dude. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, he he was eliminated the first night, uh, but he's he's a good dude with a big heart. We talk on the phone sometimes. Oh, nice. But aside from him, I haven't encountered another person who identified as an Indian American on the show until me. Uh, and then I'm the first to get a rose on the show. That's wild. Like, I just, I want to like, just pause for a second and let everyone have that sink in. Because we're what, in like season 26? Or, I mean, this show has been on the air for decades now. And... For you to be the first South Asian man to get a uh, rose is it's like a little fucked up. I think <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's hard. It's hard to say. You know, I think that people have different tastes for reality TV. People have a different comfort level with yeah. going on TV and like you know making out with people. I don't know, taking your shirt off and like you know pumping your chest yeah. and doing all these performative like gestures of like masculinity and people have a different level of comfort with that. And I think it's up to the individual as to whether or not you think you can be okay in that setting. Me, like I'm the type of person where like it's easy to fit in, but you know, it's much more important to make room in places where they don't have people like you. Uh, So, and that's just who I am as a person where like, you know, I could go to like the Indian dating show about Indians or I can go to like the one they need, people with with that look like you because diversity is more than just your skin color there's a diversity in lived experiences there's a diversity in how you express how much you love somebody or how much you want to be with them or what you're willing to do to express your love for someone there's different ways that people not only express how much they care about each other but how they how they make their friendships uh what type of food they bring to the for example, like, you know, I'm not going to name any guys on the show by name, but there are some guys that brought like food from, you know, their family that if they weren't there, wouldn't be on the show. Me, I wore a narrow suit. Like, on yes, the that was so dope. Like, I loved it. Diversity is more than just how you look. It's about what other things you bring to the table as well. Uh, so, so this, I think is like, it, it's a really cross cutting thing to think about when trying to enter this space and show America that you as a person of color or as an Indian person or whatever, that you are, that you are a viable romantic partner for a show that otherwise is working hard to try to diversify. That's so important. And I think just what you did being on the show is going to hopefully open doors for more of that representation, especially on The Bachelorette, because I've seen a few South Asian women on The Bachelor over the years. But yeah, there's like room for improvement, definitely in The Bachelorette. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 individual preferences, but there's always room for improvement. Yeah. And hopefully there will be on The Bachelorette. I don't know if you can or want to talk about this, but um your dating life since the show? Are we going to see you on the beach this summer? <laughs> These are all things I'm wondering about. <laughs> so the latter comment is no comment. Maybe. Okay. Maybe. Uh, oh, if you get like, will you please go on the beach if they let you go or tell you to go? <laughs> I mean, considering it's like 20 degrees outside, I would kill to be on a beach right now. <laughs> yes, totally. Um, You know, I mean, maybe. Okay. Okay. Who knows? Yeah, I don't know. Or maybe I do. Maybe I don't. I don't know. Okay. But... All right. We'll we'll take that for its face value. <laughs> uh, but dating life, like, uh, I mean, I've just been a hermit, man. Like, I like being a hermit. I like staying home, uh, especially when it's cold outside. Um, but 
you know, I, I, I haven't really gone on too many dates like lately because like I've been really busy mm-hmm. or like I'm just not ready for it. I think a lot of it is like just not being ready for it because I'm somebody that like I want to be married in like two years. Like I want to be done. Like yeah. if, if somebody asked me to be the bachelor, my answer would be like, I don't want to be a bachelor anywhere. Like I want to be <laughs> I want to be done with this. So like uh, I want to be like settled in like the next two, maybe three years. And so like all my energy when it comes to dating, like I wanted to be like on that finding yeah. that like forever partner. And so that takes like a lot more like, you know, time and energy, like to find somebody who's serious as opposed to find somebody who's just dating around. Mm-hmm. And so for that reason, it's like I'm a little more like picky, like where I spend my time these days as far as like romantic partners. So has the show like uh, made my dating life easier? I mean, like it happens <laughs> to everybody, you know, like, <laughs> happens to everybody. People sliding uh, into your DMs yeah, left and right, I'm sure. Yeah. And, that's, and that's anybody who's been on that's the I'm not trying to like, you know, globe, but that's literally anybody who's been oh, on yeah. the show, right? And yeah. so um, so yeah, you get propositioned way more, but like, you know, it's like thank you. <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm okay. Like I get you get you like you, I get a DM from somebody that lives in, like Nebraska, like bro. Yeah. <laughs> It's not going to happen. <laughs> nah. Like, <laughs> so, so like I'm chilling right now. I'm cool. Nice. Nice. So I want to talk about your podcast, the Deep Thoughts podcast, because the tagline on the Instagram anyway is that it features minorities in the sciences, arts, and public service, which kind of set off a light bulb in my brain because, you know, I'm in the arts, which is not common for South Asian Americans, um, just in general, but you know, like my dad and my brother, they're both scientists and I've spent and public service is like really important to me. And so all of these things have like been a really important part of my life. And it was like exciting to see that you were digging into that. So I'm curious to hear what you feel the connections are between those three things, science, arts and public service. Yeah. So, you know, I started that podcast, uh, at the start of the at the start of the our fight, at the start of the <laughs> pandemic, uh, <laughs> you know, when Trump was president or whatever, like I was just so mm-hmm. annoyed. Like I like there were so many instances where I felt like, man, like I know at least three people who can like talk about this pandemic in a in an informed way, and yeah, and a lot of it was just agitation with the fact that we're not having the progress that we need to to get this pandemic under control. And so it started out as as an outlet to have my scientist friends, other grad students talk about their research, make science more approachable, uh, talk about COVID. Like I have a couple episodes there about COVID and how scientists have been volunteering their time to do pro bono science, to do testing, to correct misinformation, to open labs. For example, March 2020, um, my team and I opened a, a testing lab in my old neighborhood in Brooklyn in less than six weeks, which is unheard of in the sciences. It's like, it's like impossible to do that, but it happened. Like we, we took it from an empty room into a viable testing space. It's brilliant people like that, that deserve a platform when you're in a healthcare crisis. Uh, And so all of that combined is what kicked off the podcast. And then realizing that as a scientist coming up against like regulatory barriers to just do PCR testing yeah. in, a, in a crisis is where the science and policy comes in. Mm. Why is it so hard to get like approval for somebody to spit saliva into a test tube? It's like that's where the that's where the policy aspect comes in, and then the sort of minorities aspect comes into it. Comes in 
to where once we were bringing this this testing to communities of color or communities where English wasn't the first language, this is like communities where I'm from. They don't want to get tested because they don't want to sign uh, documents because they might be undocumented or they don't or there aren't any documents that exist on publicly available government websites that come in Spanish or Urdu mm-hmm. or Arabic or Hindi or whatever. Or uh, And because they only come in English, they're very skeptical about getting tested. And this yeah. resulted in people not getting tested and the disease spreading more and more people dying and getting sick and all this kind of shit. So it's like that's where the minority aspect comes into it because this was a lab that was run by women and women of color and me as well. Mm-hmm. And it's like we are now in a space where we can go to these communities and be trusted because we're scientists of color in communities of color. And it, and it goes right back around to me not having any scientists in my community growing up, but it would have been nice to have that, especially in the healthcare crisis. So all of that wrapped together is what started the podcast. But nowadays, I kind of toned it down a little bit <laughs> to <laughs> okay. uh, to make it more of a pop science-y kind of podcast because okay. it's my way of trying to make science more approachable. Like I'm doing a series all about the science of, for example, where the last episode was all about the science of comedy, where we talk about brain pathways associated with laughter, the science of, I don't know, space exploration, which is one that's coming out later, where we talk about the James Webb telescope, for example. Uh, I'm incorporating all things science at this point uh, and not just the neurosciences. Or the science of love, for example, is like your brain on love is love a drug. Um, yeah. Yeah. All this stuff, I'm try- it tries to make science more approachable, I think. And what has been some of the reaction from your listeners? Are they appreciating kind of, like you said, like a pop science approach to exploring topics? I, I, I get a lot of nice messages from you know people who are still in school and people who are still in grad school and whatever, uh, that it's a nice podcast to listen to while they're studying or while they're in the lab or while they're like jogging or something. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that to me is like enough. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm just happy to push it out into the ether. Uh, if someone screams back, that's fine. If not, like I'm happy that it's there. So yeah, I get, I get a lot of positive feedback. But it's it's more of a side hustle at this point because, yeah. as you know, podcasting takes a lot of time. It's a lot of time, listeners lot of time. out there. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, if I would do if I would do it full time, like, you best believe I'll go super sane on this podcast. But because I do a full time job, and amongst other things, it's more like as on an as needed basis. Um, but you know, there's still a, the, I would produce an episode maybe once a month on average. Yeah. But you know, there's still a Patreon for it, so we should have checked that out. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So one last thing I wanted to ask you about was like some of your other interests. You've mentioned a couple of times that you're into gaming. So what are like some of your favorite gaming things? <laughs> so gaming is awesome. Uh, I've been gaming ever since I was a kid. And, yeah. you know, it's like probably because like gaming was really cheap mm-hmm. and it provides hours of entertainment for a family that's really poor. <laughs> so, yeah. but, but now I still play games because it's, it's just, it's like gaming is like a, like, it's like a board game. It's like it's like a puzzle. Yeah. You pick up the controller and you try to solve it. You pick up the controller, you try to beat the game or you try to become a competitive gamer by becoming the best in the world at something. And it's it's also like a community as well where you meet a lot of other gamers who might be, I don't know, speedrunners who beat a game as quickly as possible and find all the little clips and hacks to get through a game oh, yes. that would otherwise take 30 hours that you get through in 10 <laughs> minutes somehow. Yeah. <laughs> or or um or they're really intense gamers who like exactly examining games frame by frame to find mm. all those little those little uh hacks or whatever so and then there's like you know 
playing competitively with my friends back home or my friends from around the world you you develop bonds with over the internet so and then there's like you know actual gaming characters that i that i have like and developers that i have like a real like a real what what's the word like uh like i have a real i guess attraction for i guess um mm-hmm. developers who make game who make like legacy titles that i always get every time they come out like yeah. like metal gear solid for example has been a title that's been around since the 90s mm-hmm. but it's one of the greatest game series of all time and it's it's like a work of art like when you're playing a game the developers put like a lot of little details or like a lot of little secrets throughout the game that you have to find you have to solve and it's like it's like a treasure hunt in a way uh so that alone like is one of my creature comforts, I think. You know, sometimes I feel like gaming can also be this like space where people are like, oh, you're into it or you're not. But like, I feel like with the world phenomenon with Wordle coming out, (laughs) that like maybe the everyday person who like didn't understand the joy that you get out of just like completing a task or like, you know, solving the puzzle, as you said, like it it gives you this little like jolt of like joy, I think that we all kind of need these days. (laughs) I agree. I, especially when you're stuck at home all day. Like, what else are you going through? <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. Well, I would love if you could tell your listener, our listeners, how they can find you on social media, how they can learn more about your podcast, like any things that they should know about. Yeah. I mean, definitely follow the Instagram, Pardeep in Brooklyn on Instagram. Uh, check out my Twitter, Deep Brain Stimuli. Uh, but stimuli is spelled S-T-M-U-L-I, not S-T-I-M-U-L-I, because Twitter has a character limit. <laughs> so keep <laughs> <Yeah>. stimuli. <laughs> My podcast is called Deep Thoughts, Science, and Social Justice on Spotify. Give it a listen. Let me know what you think. I'm happy to hear your suggestions. Uh, shoot me a DM if you have any questions about that. And the Instagram for that is deep underscore thoughts underscore podcasts on Instagram. Check that out as well. I'm, I'm very open to DMs. I love responding to people. Feel free to message me anytime. I'm here for it. Uh, if you have any cool ideas for an episode or a guest you want to suggest, I'm happy to talk about it. Uh, if any if anybody is in New York, you want to grab a drink or something, I'm here for it. Just let me know. Uh, I'm a very social, very open person. So that's it. Awesome. Well, Pardeep, thank you so much for speaking with me. This has been such a wonderful conversation. So great to learn more about you than even just the two weeks we saw you on the screen on Michelle's season. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It was my pleasure. Anytime, anytime. Thanks for listening to Family Karma Cast. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And support the podcast by becoming a subscriber to our Patreon page. When you do, you'll get access to our weekly Thirsty 30 Bravo TV and pop culture chats and more. Find out more at patreon.com slash Cast with a K.